Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the GRC and Cybersecurity Podcast. In today's episode of the Leaders of Risk and Cyber Series, we have a very special guest, Stuart Powell, CISO at the Government of Jersey. We discuss identity access management and how you can improve this in your organisation. And then also we go back to one of the topics that everyone's wanted to know more about at the moment, which is AI and how it can affect and the risks on your organisation. Hi, Stuart. Can you introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about the company that you work for? So, yeah, uh, Stuart Powell. I'm the CISO for Government of Jersey. So not technically a company. We're a public sector. We're a small island. So depending on how broad your listenership is, uh, a small island between the UK and France called Channel Islands. About 100,000 people living on an island, clinging to a rock, as we like to say. Yeah, my remit basically covers all public sector, but we're a crown dependency. So that's public service. Uh, so the sort of council level stuff, as well as central government, um, as you imagine, you know, anything in the UK, central government, you've got the parliament, you've got treasury, you've got everything except defence, actually. So we're reliant on the UK for defence, kinetic defence, but actually our cyber defence is uh, for us to manage. And that's where, where my role is uh, at the pointy end, um, making sure that government Jersey systems are safe and secure, or as safe and secure as they can be in this world. Fantastic. So before we go any further, one of the things we always like to ask is what do you get up to outside of work? So can you give a little bit of an overview of kind of what hobbies and things you're into at the moment? Uh, I've got two, uh, I say young young children, but they're not anymore. They're teenagers. Um, so they're off to university soon. So as a family, we, we support the kids, as uh, obviously everyone does. Personally, my main interests are getting out and about in the island. So I enjoy running, I enjoy cycling, but my main passion is surfing. So you know, we're a small island, nine by five, but we've got a lovely big beach that's west facing. So practically most days in the year, there'll be something that's surfable. But so yeah, so you'll find me down there when it's, when it's world class. I will be at work, um, but I may be a little late. Fantastic. So can you tell us a little bit about role? You said you're a CISO, but can you give an overview of your, I guess, how you got into security in your career so far? Um, so I've worked for the public sector most of my professional life. Um, started off in the service desk and then moved into sort of uh, the, the more, of a, more of the technical IT branch. And I moved into being infrastructure architecture. So that basically means designing, and at the time actually designing and implementing and supporting big bits of infrastructure. So I was the lead on a few uh, data center consolidation programs. Um, where we went from multiple server rooms or cupboards under stairs where you had compute to you know, proper modern-day data centers and aggregating um, all of our service lines into high-density compute. So that's you know, implementing blade infrastructure, hypervisors on those systems, shared storage sands and all that stuff. So I've come from a very technical background. There came a period sort of five, six years ago when I sort of reached a ceiling in terms of progression and promotion, and you know, I, was, I was as good as I could be architectonologically. But from a career development, I kind of got to a point where I had to make some decisions. And as part of architecture, as part of the technical architecture role is ensuring that what you're designing is secure. So that sort of naturally bled me into looking at the bigger security challenges that an organization faces. And I, you know, at the time, the organization focused on security. There was an opening. I applied. And uh, yeah, I sort of started the security journey for the government of Jersey so, several years ago. Amazing. And just because obviously public sector is probably very different from other things. Can you talk about kind of the size and stage of the government's security program? Yeah. So um, I mean, it's been running now for a few years and it, it covers all the standard typical domains that you'd expect. So sort of training and awareness, vulnerability management, your sort of sock and seam, your sort of outsource services where you've got technical experts looking at your, looking at your state and responding on your behalf to, to bits and pieces. And identity and access management is probably uh, a big area of focus where big complex organizations sometimes very sometimes struggle quite a bit with managing identities through the organization. So joiners, movers, leaders is a very simple concept. But in practice, when you consider the number of systems and applications uh, and departments that all have to interact, it, it is actually quite a complex environment. 
So can we talk a little bit about your reporting structure? So who do you report to? And also, who are your direct reports? What does your team look like? I report to the CIO, which is uh, a fairly senior role in the organisation. Uh, that's not that's not untypical for CISOs. I think the organisation's on a journey. I think most organisations are on a cyber journey of some sort. And where the CISO reports is actually a bit of a hot topic in the CISO community. I think what's more important isn't where you report into, but it's the access that you've got to decision makers. So you know, the concept of matrix management and you know, having specialist SMEs being able to have the ability to work independently of direct management is probably where we're more working. So, so long as I've got access to the right people at the right level of the organization to take risk decisions to, then actually the, the line management and the line reporting becomes less important. Obviously, if you're in a very hierarchical organization, then yeah, obviously the, the line management that you report into is critical for your success to deliver. But I think we're a fairly forward-looking organization in terms of how we manage people. Uh, yeah, so CIO is a good place to report. They understand the, the challenge. And a lot of the challenge is technical, but we also need to acknowledge that the role of the CISO is not a technical role. Um, it's about cyber transformation. It's about risk, primarily it's about risk management. So as long as you've got access to risk owners and you can access them as, as required, as needed, then actually as a CISO, you can be effective. Fantastic. So how are you currently spending your time? Like what are the key priorities that you're focused on right at this point in time? So we, you know, we're coming off the back of a, of a big investment. That's not to suggest where we started was poor. It's just, you know, the world has changed and organizations are waking up to the fact that they need to do a lot in cybersecurity. So having reached the end of a big transformation journey, I think the initial focus will be on, on embedding, embedding the controls that we've designed and, de- and delivered and ensuring sustainment. So making sure that those controls are effective, measurable, and have longevity. Because we're public sector, we are under a lot of public scrutiny around public spend. So the money we spend on security needs to absolutely wash its face. So we need to, I need to be certain that, that the controls that we've designed and put in at taxpayers' money, at taxpayers' cost, are doing what they were designed to do. So my focus in the next, I don't know, say six to 12 months will be ensuring that all of those things are, are fully embedded and building the teams or supporting the teams around each of those service lines to ensure that they're, they're well established on their continual improvement journey. So yeah, fine, they're managing what's there today, but they have to absolutely respond to the threats, the external threats. So a good example of that is our SOC you know, Security Operations Centre. They absolutely need to be aware of geopolitical tensions, new vulnerabilities, all the standard stuff. Um, but we as a customer, as a client, need to drive that agenda. We can't expect our service suppliers to be doing that for us. We need to really take ownership of that and, and sort of manage the direction. I'm conscious I didn't mention my team previously. So I'm, I've actually got a relatively small team, but actually they're not the important part. The important part is the rest of the organization and their service lines um, all align, all aligning to the strategic direction of the security. So you know, I've got a team of four, but that's really just sort of governance and oversight piece. You know, we've got security operations function, we've got security architecture function, then we've got business um, departmental security related roles embedded across the business. So it's a family. My direct reports, my direct line reports aren't ones keeping the lights on, but uh, yeah, we work together. And yeah, back to the matrix management piece and the forward looking way of managing people. I think it, it's, it's a good model. We need to evolve it more clearly, but everyone's in this position. Cyber is, we need to sprint to keep up as professionals in this game. Yeah, I mean, I guess you think about a bad guy is probably always moving two steps ahead and you just need to keep going with it. And look, it's a challenge, isn't it? And especially, like you said, with you have to make sure all security spend is understood. You have to obviously go for it's not the same as a traditional company, whereas everything is taxpayers' money and you have to validate risk reduction, I would assume, for why you're implementing new technology or new programs of work. 
Yeah, yeah. Risk management is a is a focus for the organisation, and actually, cyber risk is just another business risk. It just happens to be a very important one. And if it's treated and managed the same way as the rest of the business risks, then actually, I'm doing my job correctly, and my, you know, the board, if you like, or the you know, the senior leadership, then have confidence that their decision making is well founded and based on on the important metrics that are being fed to them. So we're going to go a bit more into a deep dive subject now. So when we spoke last time, you and you've kind of mentioned it already, the importance of getting identity access management right. Do you mind explaining to the listeners your view on this? Yeah, so if we wind the clock back, say, 10 years or so, maybe a bit further back, 15 years, security used to all be all about the perimeter. You'd be uh, an armadillo, if you like, so a hard exterior and a soft interior, and actually as long as you keep everyone out then actually it doesn't matter if your interior is soft and and weak and full of vulnerabilities. Generally, you're safe. That was the world we used to live in. Obviously, with cloud compute and various other types of mobile apps and all all of the technology that we're so used to, that perimeter is now so porous that it isn't actually a perimeter anymore. We don't, you know, firewalls, yes, do a job, but they also do a lot of other stuff to allow connections in and out, left, right, up and down. So identity becomes the last sort of logical perimeter that you can manage as a company, you're in charge of your people, you're in charge of the access that you give them, but you might not necessarily be in control of all of the technology that they use. So for example, if, if you've got your main business line applications in a SaaS platform, then actually a lot of the infrastructure isn't your responsibility to manage and maintain, it's, it's the suppliers. Yeah, and you can't necessarily govern and manage how the access to that data is, is managed on a technical level, but you can, can absolutely manage the access control part of it. So identity and access management becomes almost your most critical part as a company that you can still control in this current modern hybrid world of working. So getting a real firm grip on the people that are coming into your organization, how you onboard them, the access you give them, and how they operate whilst they're working for you and how they move around within your organization. So obviously the bigger your organization, the more movers you have between service lines. And obviously if you're not governing and managing their access based on their role, role role-based access has been talked about for decades and it's a really hard thing to implement well. But if you do implement that well and you've got all the processes behind it, then actually you can provide transparent assurance to all your stakeholders that the right person's got access to the right data at the right time. And actually, if you're operating like that, you make some of the real simple attack vectors impossible for an attacker to leverage. And then if you do that well, you can focus on some of the other stuff and you can start to move your cyber maturity journey up, up up the scale. Yeah, I mean, even when I was starting out as an auditor, some of the things were around, obviously, making sure you've got correct role-based access controls, segregation of duties, efficient joiners, movers, levers. They're all things that we've talked about for years, but it was predominantly focused around the finance processes where people <laughs> spent a lot of this time. Obviously, it needs to be done in all the other areas because people accrue access to things that, especially in IT and security, where they get access to a lot of things and it, they can accrue to get a lot of permissions and be obviously a very dangerous person to the organization. So one of the things that we, that you've spoke about there, so is there any practical steps you've taken or you'd recommend organizations to do to improve their identity access management processes? I personally think it's largely a maturity thing. So I think if you've got a well-regulated, if you work in a well-heavily or well-regulated industry, then you're almost compelled to operate a certain way. And that in turn fosters a sort of more mature way of approaching some of the risks. I think in some organizations that have grown more organically and are slightly behind the curve, then the processes aren't as robust. So I think the single best and most effective thing you can do is ensure that all of your managers have a well-documented responsibility for ensuring that their staff have access to the right things for their job. 
And so, yeah, you, you can do a con- command and control and, and mandate things from above and control things centrally. But actually, it's your managers in the organization that make things happen. And it's your managers will be the first to throw service desk tickets in when their staff can't access the things they need to. But they also have to be really on the ball with actually when they don't need that access anymore or their roles change to actually start removing access. And it's the removal of access that never impacts anyone until it all goes wrong. So I think a strong culture, a strong security culture, and that comes back to training awareness more than anything else, but also getting the processes embedded in the business where managers have to, on a periodic basis, recertify that their staff um, have the correct access. And by the correct access, it's not the access they need to do the job, but ensuring they haven't got the access that they shouldn't have to do, you know, that they may have had from previous jobs. So again, it's a combination of well-deployed processes, a culture of awareness, and managers doing the right thing, not doing the thing that they need to get their job done, but looking actually holistically, looking out for the rest of the business. And is that a thing that I was one of the questions, you answer, kind of answer one of the questions we're going to ask there. Is that something that you do like an ongoing basis? Is it an annual review and you're just asking them to recertify the permissions that they're there or the roles that they have? So one of the challenges we've come across is generally access is granted through Active Directory group membership in a, in a Microsoft-centric um, organization, which I think the majority of your listeners will be. Unless you've had some strong discipline around how you govern and manage the population and creation of those groups, it's going to be very difficult to work out by a group name what it actually gives access to. So one of the biggest challenges we've had is if you ask a manager to look at an AD group and validate that its membership is correct, they won't be able to answer that with confidence because they don't know where that group's been used in the organization. It might have been used by another part of the organization just because it's got the right number of people in it. And that decision would have been made on a certain date. Then time elapses and that group membership changes. And before you know it, the, the rationale for putting that group on that object is now no longer valid because the wrong people got wrong access. But it's a very difficult thing to surface to managers because managers are not IT people. We don't want them to be, we wouldn't expect them to be. So rolling back to how you provision access in the first instance and ensuring that you have good discipline in that will help build proper data. And when I say data, I mean the data around Active Directory and who's in what group and what groups give access to what resources. All of that really needs to be documented and put into registers. And then those registers kept active and alive when new business lines start up or new systems get put in, those registers are maintained by service owners. So again, it comes again. It's, it's a maturity thing. You have to assign ownership and responsibilities for various functions and processes. And if they're in place and people are following them and you can provide the assurance that they're being followed, then actually that builds a good baseline, a good foundation of data quality. And then you can start doing some of this automation so that you can get some of the recertification stuff in front of business users. And it makes sense. There's no point putting stuff in front of business users that don't make sense because all they'll do is choose the path of least resistance and just go next, next, next. Yeah, it's all done. And actually, you're not reducing risk by doing that. So it is difficult, but it's worth spending the time to get some of the foundational processes fixed. We talk about legacy in this industry quite a lot, and that every organization will have a legacy challenge in their Active Directory environment. It's just natural. Getting control around it is the key. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because I've seen it so many times where you've, (laughs) even when we're doing simple integrations for Active Directory groups and you get all kinds of things back and you're looking at it going, thousands of these things and <laughs> you're trying to assign things to it and you're like no wonder a manager's struggling to understand it because you basically give them here's this person who has access to 15 groups and the groups have got all kinds of weird names even linked to business units that no longer exist right in some cases you, <laughs> you've got no idea what it's doing so let's move a little bit into something else so we talk about some of your challenges who you report to but like what do you think is really working at the moment what's really making a difference in your organization I think senior stakeholder understanding of the challenge. I think if you can get senior stakeholders understanding the challenge, 
then when you put forward ideas, proposals, concepts to solve some of those challenges, they can buy into it without having to reinvent that wheel, without having to have the conversation over and over. So I think what does work well is if you get senior decision makers, board members, to use private sector language, engaged in the challenge and actively engaged, not engaged because they're nodding along because they don't understand. And that comes down to the maturity of the board as well. So if you've got a very mature board who understands risk management, they will listen to the subject matter experts in your in your organization. And you, you don't have to have the title of a CISO, you just have to have the responsibility for security. And that comes in many different flavors. But so long as you've got access and you can communicate in a clear way so that non-technical people understand the risks, and that's not easy, but if you can achieve that, then I think that's probably the single most effective thing to get in place. Because from that, it unlocks so much. Just getting that top level buy-in even if it's not about spending money and it's about making changes to the process. Process changes impact people's working day and they will push back and you won't be able to push you won't be able to push these things bottom up. Whereas if you've got senior leadership engagement, they can support it top down. And if you and, and that's the carrot and the stick piece. Carrots don't always work in the security world. In a perfect world, they would always be the way forward. People will do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, and they get reward, be it personal reward or financial reward or whatever you can put in place. But at some point, you will have to impact people's day and you will have to inject friction into the organization. And that's the cultural piece. That's the bit where if we're all change agents and we can all adapt and adopt change and champion it, then actually that's really good. But sometimes in organizations that has to come from the top as a stick. And you know, a blended approach of carrot and stick is the way forward for any. You know, this is not specific to cyber, it's specific to the world and everything we do. Yeah, I, I agree. Because you can. there's got to be a point of where you say, look, we recommend you do this, we recommend you do that. And then at some point it's like, look, we're telling you this is a really big problem. You need to understand this really. And then, but as you said, it's making sure they understand the business impact of it. Because I think sometimes people get caught up and say, oh, this SLA has not been met because of whatever patching. But then you say, okay, but that affects five critical services that we run. Then they go, oh, right, <laughs> we need we need to do something with that. And I think it's always about saying to them, what the impact of the business is rather than just saying this technical thing over here has gone wrong because a lot of the time they'll go so what (laughs) they they don't know and what are the probably more towards it being a the government side is what are the challenges that you see obviously building an effective security function working i mean there's two parts actually i'll stop there being on an island and then secondly that it's a government thing what are the challenges you have with building a security function well just the government one first so yeah, a government, you'd like to think your government's all joined up and all parties are talking to one another and they're all holistically pulling in the same direction. But the reality is, is that any government, in fact, any big corporate is comprised of multiple smaller entities, all with their own mission statements and their own business drivers. And I think the biggest challenge is getting alignment on that. And that's where the board, again, back to my previous conversation, you know, the board is the common factor there. They all report into a single thing that, that has the interests of the large organization as their primary focus. And if you can get the board on board engaged with the challenge at hand, then actually implementing changes, which is ultimately a security program is all about just making change for the better and sustaining it, then actually that's the most effective thing you can do. And that is actually the biggest challenge to overcome. If you don't have access to the board or you can't get access to the board through upward management, then you're very limited and very constrained as to what you can do in terms of a security program, in terms of security transformation or just improvement, because ultimately it comes down to impacting business lines and introducing friction into the into the system. And if you haven't got support from above for that, it'll just fail. People will work around it, they'll, they'll push back. It'll just become a fight. There's enough challenge fighting the bad actors. 
we don't really want to be fighting our internal internal structures and, and functions. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as a jurisdiction, we want to retain talent uh, on Ireland because from a you know, supporting local economy and it's, it's just the right thing to do. We are challenged, but you know we're, we've got a very small uh, talent pool on the island. It's not suggest there's no talent on the island; it's just small. And actually, you know, when you're talking about roles such as cyber architects, you don't have many cyber architects just sort of twiddling their thumbs looking for new opportunities. They're all everyone that's capable in this space uh, is already oversubscribed. So, yeah, recruitment uh, and importantly retention is a huge challenge for us. And I don't think it's just us as an island as a government. I think it's globally. I think any organization trying to attract security talent into their organization is challenged. And there's t- in my mind, there's two ways to fix it. Offer massive salaries. There comes a limit where that's not sustainable. Or generate an alternate pool for the work. So yeah, working in the public sector is very different from private sector. And actually, if you're a civil servant, you're there because you want to do the right thing for society. You want to make a difference. I'm not suggesting that some of the private companies don't work that way but it's absolutely a primary driver for a lot of civil servants is they're not there for the money and because it's public purse it's all scrutinized and rightly so you know we don't want to be spending a lot of money on resources when actually there's another way so it kind of does challenge the building of capable teams but one of the adages that i sort of live and breathe by is that i tend to focus on attitude and aptitude over knowledge and experience because i think knowledge and experience can be taught and acquired whereas attitude and aptitude it's innate. It's part of who you are as a person. So if you've got somebody applying for a security role within a government and all they're interested is climbing the ladder and getting money, maybe they're not the right fit for my team. Um, if you've got somebody in that's passionate about the subject and wants to learn more and they're hungry to learn, then actually that in and of itself is an attribute that I would absolutely be, be open to over qualifications coming out your ears. Because you can have someone very studious that's got no ambition, no drive, no get up and go. And actually... When you're working under pressure and you've got a lot to do, you need somebody to be self-starting and get up and go. So, and again, I don't think these things are specific to our organisation. I think I'm seeing this globally. I think we've got some some other constraints maybe, but I think we've also got some other levers that we can pull on as a government that maybe private sectors don't. Yeah, and you kind of started to answer the next question, but let, let, let's jump to that because it kind of makes a lot of sense. So talk me through what you think a great information security professional, what are the skills you look for? So I think one of the biggest attributes I look for is integrity. Obviously, that's... Integrity on its own doesn't make you a good professional, um, but it makes you a trustworthy professional. Um, And I think in this day and age, with the complexity of the environments, we have to trust our people. We can't command and control from above. We can't run it like a military organization. There just isn't the bandwidth to have that amount of management overhead. So we have to trust our people. They have to be willing to learn and operate outside of comfort zones. um, I listen to a number of podcasts, but uh, one of the guys I I listen to regularly, he he has this phrase, which is, Everything you know about IT and security is obsolete within 18 months. So, you know, we as professionals have to keep up and the industry has to sprint to keep up with, with changes. And I think, you know, it's not just changes in technology, but it's changes in the way our threat actors use that technology. So the people have to be adaptable, willing to be challenged, embrace the challenge. Not sure if I answer that question directly, but that's the sort of team that I'm looking for. No, no, that's fine. And then what are your biggest areas of concern for 2023? I mean, chat GPT is all over the place. AI seems to be the buzzword of the of the week, year, decade. Um, I, I genuinely think it's going to be transformative globally, not just in security, but I think as a species, I think we're about to witness a step change in what we can do with technology. So with opportunity comes risk. So I think that's going to be a focal point for, and I wouldn't say it's just security. Um, I think that's a focal point for industry at large. So I think there's going to be a lot of focus on large language models, open AI, implementation of what they're doing with chat GPT. 
in my mind, there's a couple of angles to that. So one is use of these technologies, use of the open technologies and people's willingness to engage with them because they're so easy to get results. I think there's a huge risk of corporate and personal data being put into these platforms. And I don't think we're clear on what happens with that data. So the one thing I would caution is don't put corporate sensitive information or personal sensitive information, stuff that you would ordinarily protect into these platforms to get your answer out, whatever that might be. That's just a word of warning. It sounds simple, but these things are very easy to to be tempted into into asking more and more questions of them. And then on the sort of broader piece is that you know, the, the use of AI and machine learning technology is, is here. You know, we've got you know, the technology you, you buy today off the shelf has AI and machine learning built into it. I say AI is a strong term, but machine learning for certain. Um, so I think it's understanding how we can leverage these things better. But actually, it comes back to a more fundamental principle of data management. So a lot of organizations have a lot of information and data in their environments. And actually, ultimately, that's what we're protecting. As professionals, you know, a cyber criminal doesn't want to access your servers. They want to access the data. You know, yes, they might put some ransomware on a server, but actually what they're doing is denying you access to the data. If it was easier spinning up another server tomorrow, we'd all not worry about ransomware because the recovery is straightforward. It's the data because that's proprietary. That's yours as a company. So coming back to what I reckon is going to be the focus next or the worry bead for the next couple of years, I think it's what machine learning does. And for those organizations that are embracing it, if they haven't got good quality data and processes behind it, informing these algorithms and these models, then there is a danger that what comes out of them isn't doesn't have the integrity it needs to have. So I think there'll be a lot of people putting a lot of hope and trust into these platforms Whereas actually it's the data that they're putting their trust in. And if that's not in a good shape to start with, I think there's a danger there. So I, I think there's going to be a data-centric focus across the security industry in the next two, three years. I think if you asked me this question three, four years ago, it would have been around identity. Um, we've spoken about identity. I think data is now the next layer that needs some real, real effort to resolve. Yeah, we had a guest on very recently, Sam Bisbee, um, and we spoke in detail about this. And it was kind of like, look, AI is here. <laughs> You have to accept it's there, but you have to inform people the risks. And exactly what you said there is don't put anything that you wouldn't want in the public domain on it because it's not that I don't think anyone's entirely clear what's been done with it. I think there's a lot of uses of it. I'm seeing a lot of people using it in marketing and things that for externally things. I've also seen it. I've also seen product managers use it for, you know, analyzing big data sets. So actually I've seen it go and looking at review websites was one and it can summarize review websites for you. But you've got to know what you're looking at and be able to challenge it. I think you can't, as you were saying, take it as golden, assume what it gives you back is correct. You have to be able to analyze it and, and leverage that data. So we're going to finish with what, what often is the hardest question. So if you had one wish in security to fix, what would it be? Tricky, because there are many, and they're all probably equally as weighty. I would say have every employee in the organization know the mission and be present in their thoughts around security and actually take security seriously on an individual basis and have that as part of their fabric and everything they do. So every action, every decision they make, have security baked in. Um, and not you know, not from a sort of dogmatic point of view, but from a cultural point of view, understand that everybody has a role to play in the organization. And actually, if everybody operated like that, then everything else becomes so much easier. Any suggestions around process change, any kind of reactive response, incident management, all becomes easier because people engage with the process and they understand their role in it. So if there was a magic wand, it would be to get everyone in the organization aligned around security. It's a tall ask. It's probably an impossibility and a pipe dream. But, you know, you ask the question. <laughs> so thanks, you for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, if our listeners want to hear more from you, reach out to you, is there anywhere that they, they can do that? 
that well, like most of us, I've got a presence on LinkedIn, so um, you can connect to me there. I generally am quite fussy about who I connect with, but uh, if you're in the industry and you're genuinely interested, then connect and uh, yeah, introduce yourself and I'll, I'll, I'll respond. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. It's great. Thank you.